Well, hey, everybody, you're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where founders and operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujikov, and our guest today is Galib Suleiman, a co-founder and CEO at Polytomic, a San Francisco-based software company that allows business teams to easily access all the data located outside of their home systems. Today, we're talking with Galib about the nuances of moving the business data where it's needed. But before we get into that, Galib, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. Yeah, uh, well, thanks for joining. Uh, we're excited to hear about you and your, you know, what you're doing uh, at Polytomic. But before we get into kind of the meat and potatoes of the show here, why don't you get us started? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in tech. Sure. Um, I don't have any grand stories that say I was hacking since I was seven, but I happened to study computer science and maths at university. Um, rather enjoyed both topics and enjoyed the CS part some more, and then got a tech job after that and haven't left tech since. Well, hey, sounds like a good fit. <laughs> pretty straightforward stuff, yeah. I just have no adventurous stories from when I was four years old um, writing assembly code or anything. Yeah, I mean, we get yeah. a few of those here and there. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, you know, people I like video games. I studied computer science. That's basically it. <laughs> <laughs> good enough. Um, well, you know, you're, you're clearly, clearly very good at what you do. Um, give us the elevator pitch for Polytomic. Sure. Polytomic is a really easy to use tool to sync data between your internal systems within a company. That's really it. You want to move data into some business system somewhere. This is the easiest tool you can use to do so without bothering your engineering team. Okay. Can you talk about the need for that? Like why as a business would I want to do that? Very typically, if you consider a B2B SaaS company, for example, and consider one with a sales team and a marketing team, the sales team will have what's called a customer success team. This is a team that's in charge of making sure that customers are using the products, um, making sure that they can upsell them on new products, making sure that they prevent churn in particular. Now, very typically, a sales team will live in Salesforce. Very typically, all the product usage data will live in a database controlled by engineers. So if the salespeople want to make sure that the customers are using the product and thus not at risk of churning away. They need access to this product usage data. Well, very typically, historically, what would happen is these guys would go to the engineering team and say, can you please write an in-house integration that pumps data into Salesforce about all our customers from the product? And we do exactly that. We let the people on the sales side could be a Salesforce admin, a sales ops person, but they get to move whatever data they want from the product database into Salesforce in this example without pestering engineers. Does that make sense? Yeah, basically taking some of the load off of uh, this job of moving data around um, so that the engineering teams can you know, free up a little bit more of their time. That's exactly it. Yep. And of course, the if you take Salesforce as an example, but the general observation is that every business team has a home system they rather prefer to live in. You know, us on the engineering side, we're used to, you know, eight, nine different, 10 different windows with different apps and so on. Those guys do tend to prefer a home system and just having data centralized so they can build their own workflows, reports, triggers as they see fit. They're just missing the data. That's where we come in. And can you talk about the need? Like, why do you need an engineering team to move around data? <laughs> why is this such a big pain point? Sure. Um, ultimately, it affects the bottom line. You know, if your sales reps can't 
in this example, can't keep a tab on whether the customer is using the product or not. It means that customer has signed an annual contract. They're not using the product for the last three months. The, heavy, the biggest indicator of churn is last login times, right? When what did you last use the product? So they'd be running blind then, right? They wouldn't be able to set an alarm in Salesforce that says, send me an alert if customer hasn't logged in for a month. Right. Now, if they know of that, they can then call up the customer and just find out what's going on, right? Um, do you guys need training? Has it been a confusing experience for you such that you've given up on the product? Right. If so, then, well, not to worry. We can connect you with professional services on our side who can train you this way they can keep using the product instead of churning away and getting fed up. But the key root of it all is just seeing the data and being able to act on it rather than just knowing it exists somewhere in the company. And that's one use case. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Basically enabling teams and, and, and saving a little bit of uh, time and effort for your engineering teams to, to work on other things because they're, they're typically very busy. Yeah, very typically, to be blunt about it, no engineer gets promoted for writing in-house integrations. And yet... <laughs> The business side is so very desperate for it. Like your marketing always wants to know, oh, every new user who signs up, please send them to my marketing CRM so I can kick off email campaigns and so on. Right. Well, the users don't sign up in there to begin with. They sign up in the product database. And it's always up to some engineer. I used to be this in the past to do this. And you never, ever get promoted for it. You get thanked, and that's as much as you get. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, OK, that's a cool little nugget. Um, as far as kind of why you started the company. Sounds like this was a pain point for you personally. Formatively, yeah. I, you know, goodness. I joined this company, PlanGrid, you know, when they were about 25 people and left them when they were about 350. They went on to have a successful exit. All well and good. But I joined as their first data person who then was at the center of all data issues, let's say, mm -hmm. and ended up hiring a team, um, hiring engineers, hiring data analysts, and so on. And we built all sorts of data infrastructure for the company. But this was the theme over and over again. People want access to data outside of their home system. They want it in their home system so they can work with it instead of begging other people for favors. And I used to hire engineers to do this work. And well, we just decided to make a product because the engineers certainly don't like doing the work, paradoxically, given how important it is. All right. Yeah. So big need for it. Uh, small. No one uh, wants to do it. Nobody wants to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, makes a lot of sense. We understand the need now for uh, you know this kind of tool. Can you talk about your mission as a company? Yeah, in plain English, our mission is to make internal data accessible. You know, there's it's not talked about too often, but within a company, data is split across so many different systems. You know, what we think of within companies as a customer, you know, everyone has some sort of customer record in their head, but the pieces behind the record are split across so many different systems. Salesforce contains deal information and revenue information. Your product database contains product usage information and all the properties there. Your customer support system contains tickets and what the customer was last talking about through that channel. There's just all this fragmentation. And again, the, the poor people on the business side who, again, have these giant, very capable business systems like Zendesk, like Salesforce, like HubSpot, and so on, um, are pretty much at the mercy of, well, the situation. 
they get to see customer data through a particular prism when in fact they want to see a wider view um, most of the time. And so our mission, again, plainly, is just make internal data accessible. There's a real issue with data accessibility within companies. And even though there's a laundry list of vendors throughout the decades working here, but it's clearly still an issue given the fact that you know we have customers. Uh, we wouldn't have been able to get them if there wasn't an issue. Right. So we just reckon we've just built something to make that a lot easier. Mm-hmm. And and for those customers using your product, um, can you mm-hmm. talk about like some of the benefits that they uh, might receive from from using um, a data integration software? Sure. The big one is being freed from pestering their engineers, um, because we have a point and click UI. And so there's misaligned incentives here, right? Why don't engineers get promoted for this stuff? I, I think every VP of engineering would hate me for saying this, but it's true. Um, VPs of engineering will serve the product often, right? So the CEO is going, hey, I need product, ship product, ship product, maintain product, don't bring the servers down. It's never really a core issue for the engineering side. It is a core issue for the business side to get this data in their systems. So you now have misaligned incentives where the person with a problem is not the person with a solution. The person with a solution is the engineer. But they're not meant to be working on these things to begin with. They're meant to be building product. So the real big benefit the companies get is just being free to get whatever data they want into the systems they want on the business side, right? The business side gets to operate more autonomously than they used to before. Okay. So yeah, it basically lets your teams, uh, uh, set up their own data sinks. Yeah. Without bothering uh, engineers. Right. And sometimes by the way, a chunk of our customers are also data people who aren't necessarily engineers, but sometimes what happens is instead of talking to engineering, the business side will go talk to the data team, you know, since data teams are in vogue these days. And they'll, it'll be on some poor analyst who's meant to be analyzing data. It'll be on them to suddenly start writing scripts to pipe data into Salesforce. Mm. And they themselves will go, well, I'd much rather spend my time analyzing data. I'm not even an engineer technically, but I know enough to be dangerous. And so those guys will often just bring us in also because we're a no-code tool and they'll go, well, I'll click around in your tool, just get this done with, and then go back to analyzing data. Yeah, uh, just trying to understand the market a little bit more. Is this for, you know, small, uh, adaptable teams that that, that need to use um, tools to get their work done? Or, or can this be used by kind of larger organizations? Uh, is this a need for both groups? Definitely both groups. There's a wide variance in company size. The real commonality tends to be that you have some, at least one CRM in the business and you want data moved into it from your product. That tends to be a very common thread that pulls us in. And, you know, this could be a three-person startup um, who's just a bit more mature regarding having a CRM in place. That's pretty uncommon, but it does happen. Could be a 10,000-person public company, right, who are busy with a team of data engineers writing integrations in all shapes and sizes. And the main benefit is, you know, we can come in and go, well, forget about code because it's not just writing the code, right? It's maintaining it. You're having to pay engineers hundreds of thousands of dollars just to sit there and be present in case something goes wrong Mm -hmm. or to make changes. The person, again, the person with the problem has to go through these other channels just to get some changes made or some new piece of data sent over. And we just cut all that out. Got it. Okay, so uh, let's let's try and understand some history. Can you talk about like how data integration has evolved uh, within software development organiz- or you know software organizations? Sure. Um, you know what's really happened is there's just been a SaaS explosion. That's really the big trend here. And 
there, you know, back in the day, you just didn't, well, you didn't have such a thing called the cloud, so to speak. Uh, everything was on-prem. And, you know, there were, they've been data integration vendors. You know, the great, great grandfather example was um, Tipco in the late 90s. And then they spawned, um, you know, Mealsoft decided to be a more modern Tipco. They sold to Salesforce, what, five years ago for $6 billion or something. Um, and then you just had a successive generations. Every generation has had 40 different vendors since the late 90s. But the real issue that's taken place is really the cloud. You know, the same wave that's propelled Salesforce to great success, where people are okay having their sales data in the cloud rather than on-prem. It's the same wave that's just sprouted all these SaaS companies, including us. And you now just have a million systems and companies have just become very technologically mature. You know, every there's just been an explosion in SaaS companies, which means there's been an explosion in product data within companies, mm-hmm. right? The live product data behind your online product. So that's just really it. There's been a great fragmentation of data that's come with the great explosion in SaaS. And this just results in data being split across so many different places and people wanting access to it. So it's kind of a natural... Um, it's a natural, natural. consequence of uh, yeah, SaaS explosion. That's really it. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, thanks for breaking that down. There are quite a few. You know, there's a number of data integration companies. Uh, yeah, there's a million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I got a few here. Uh, Zapier, uh, Dell Boomi, uh, IFTTT, mm-hmm. Talon, mm-hmm. SnapLogic, Xplenty, just yeah. to name a few. Um, so yep. where does Polytomic fit into all this? You know, the crazy thing about this data integration market is that there's different vendors depending on your use case. And so things like um, Xplenty or, or Talent, they work best if you're doing bulk dumps into a data warehouse, for example, right? Zapier works best with personal use cases like, oh, new row in my Google Sheet, therefore fire off an email or a Slack message. Hmm. We fit in the realm of you want to move data in bulk to business systems. That's really where we fit in. And we just do things rather differently such that you can get started in five minutes instead of going through you know, six weeks of onboarding in an enterprise fashion. But that's really the use case. You have bulk data, you want to move it into business systems, and that's where you can come talk to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what kind of business systems? Yep, I was going to elaborate on that. Very commonly, business systems tend to be things like CRMs, right? Um, your Salesforces, your HubSpots, your Marketos, your Zendesks. And a very common source is your data warehouse or your product database. Just uh, databases that contain a bunch of data that's so very crucial for the departments on the business side. Now, we tend to expand in that we support sending data from spreadsheets and so on, but that tends to be the use case that brings us in. Uh, what are some of the challenges that Polytomic helps address uh, for its users better than other tools might? The big, big one, um, there are two, actually, two big ones. One is just ease of use. I mean, this is, people really can get going and set up syncs in five minutes. You know, there's a UI, they don't need to. Traditionally, the space has been dominated by enterprise players who, let's, how shall I say this? bunch of large complicated boxes and arrows need to be assembled in a UI before you can even get going. Mm-hmm. But we're way simpler in that you just surface the fields you want from your source systems and then anyone can jump in and sync from fields source to field destination and then walk away. And everything's live and updating. So ease of use is really the big one. 
And number two, scale also. This is a very hairy business to be in technically because every system has its quirks. Every system has its API limits. Salesforce will shut you off if you keep sending it data beyond a certain point. So will all the other systems, but all to different degrees. Uh, there's really nothing consistent about how much each system can accept. And so there's a lot of sophistication on our side regarding just making this seamless for the user where the user does not have to think about all this stuff. You know, what are my API limits in HubSpot versus Zendesk versus Salesforce and all this stuff? We have a proprietary job management system that will just handle it all and scale things appropriately. So the two big ones, ease of use and then not worrying about scale or issues at scale. Okay, um, so you know uh, there are a lot of players in this space. It's very competitive. What does this kind of what does this relatively intense uh, competitive uh, ecosystem mean for the future of, of that ecosystem? I suspect you know it's always hard to predict the future, but um, looking at the past can be instructive. If you look historically, so in the early days of the personal computer market, you know late seventies, early eighties, you had many many computer manufacturers. You had, you know, Amiga, you had Commodore, you had the Atari ST. And of course, what happened was the IBM PC dominated and then the Mac took some small share that's getting ever larger. I suspect there's something analogous happening here because the industry is so very young. It's a large industry that's young at the same time, just like that industry. And so you just have a lot of fragmentation. There's, there's just a million people trying to figure out the right way to approach this. So I suspect that with time, well, that phenomenon will just minimize a bit, just like it did for the PC industry. And that at some point, some solutions will evolve to just be better solutions and get to a certain point when there really will be no need for this huge fragmentation. It's a mere prediction. Not sure whether I'll be right or wrong, but does feel like there's historical historical direction here. All right, let's make sure to write that down and uh, ping you, email you, uh, tag you on yes. Twitter. <laughs> yeah, let's talk in 10 <laughs> years, yeah. True, it, yeah. It, it feels like, it just feels like a symptom of immaturity in the markets, which is not a bad thing. It, all it means is that it's an early market. Okay. All right, um, well, thank you for kind of uh, going through the market with me. Let's talk about Polytomic. Mm -hmm. Let's start here. Who are the people behind Polytomic? Uh, how did it get started? Yeah, so there's me and my co-founder, Nathan. Um, how to get started? Well, I had the idea to start this. We both met at PlanGrid, the, the startup where I um, cut my teeth in data matters in depth. Mm -hmm. And didn't really intend to start a company after it. You know, four years as a growing startup can sap quite a bit out of you. But a year after leaving that, yeah, had the idea, talked to Nathan, convinced him that there's something here that he should quit his job for and mm -hmm. join me on. Um, he went off and had a think, came back and said, yeah, fine. You know, he happened to be having a bad week at work, which was great for me. And it's all worked out in that sense. I don't know what would have happened if I'd caused him on a good week. But um, yeah, he quit. We then I think applied to IC two weeks after he quit his job and then got in to IC a week after that, which was, it wasn't reliant on YC. You know, he'd quit and we'd, we'd both endeavored before then, but it did work out in that sense. And as we got a check, you know, some money to <laughs> pay for living expenses. Yeah. And, and I know uh, listeners are always kind of interested in, uh, you know, YC and, and how the experience goes. So can you talk about it? Uh, what, what that was like for you? Sure. Now, my ex our experience was rather exceptional because we were the COVID batch, you know, COVID struck in March. So we started in January. 
and COVID struck in March with the lockdowns and so on. So it was a very uniquely strange time as far as YC goes. You know, what happened was, oh, goodness, uh, it's trying to jog my memory. Yeah, I do remember at some points we were gathered on Zoom until, you know what, there are just no more dinners, no more events. It's all over. Um, and you're all fundraising in, I don't know, two, three days or whatever it was. And usually you go through YC and in the ramp up to demo day, your last, you know, two, three weeks are just practicing pitches, getting live feedback and so on. All that went out the window. Uh, demo day was brought forward because the markets were beginning to tumble. So um, as far as how the experience went, so I suppose initially it was okay, <laughs> but and very quickly it became not okay. Um, you know, to compound all this, we were actually building the wrong app. You know, we had the right vision, but the execution was just all wrong. Um, the thing that we were, the actual product we started with. Um, we didn't really have any customers at the end of YC. You know, we kept talking and the thing just wasn't selling. And really, we'd made something that was maybe 2x better than everything else and not 10x better. Mm. So we'd get into all these conversations and every week at YC would go back to our partners and go, yeah, yeah, you know, we think the sale's about to happen now, any day now. And, you know, we'd say the same thing week after week after week. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that our product just wasn't that much better. And then COVID hits. There's no demo day. It was quite a struggle to raise money, you know, I have to admit. We had a nice speedy round um, six months after COVID. But during that time, it was quite a struggle. So let's see. How was YC? Well, take our experiences and multiply it across, you know, 200 companies or whatever it was. And that's how it goes. Yeah. You're really just trying to figure things out. Yeah. Complicated. Yeah. How did you pivot or talk about, you know, what that was like? Yeah. Well... <sighs> You know, so we ha had the vision in my head regarding how this app should work. Now, the thing is that initially it just felt too hard. And so we really compromised away from an ambitious idea a bit and just made our product in an easier fashion, easier to build fashion. And what happened is, you know, we kept trying to sell and sell and sell. And at some point it was just clear that we'd get into conversations, but nothing would actually happen. Because people had these alternative integration tools. And while ours was better, it wasn't better enough to warrant them switching away. Right. And I think just struggling to raise money based on this, because, you know, you know, I must have pitched, goodness, um, after, after YC, like 50 investors who all said no. You know, they're all enamored with the vision. And then we get to the product and they go, okay, cool. Do you have customers? No, but, you know, these people are talking to us and maybe something will happen. Mm. And the investors... At some point, I noticed there was a common thread. They'd go, well, we love the vision. This was a very common response. We love the vision, love the vision. How are you going to get there? And my response was always, eh, we'll figure it out. It's not this, but we'll figure it out. And of course, right, you're some investor who's looking to plow $2 million into a company. You'd go, well, it's not really good enough. Hope and a prayer. But that's all we had. And after going through that, which was exhausting for me, you know, no after no after no. Of course. Um, at some points in the summer of last year, I remember just sitting down with my co-founder and going, you know what, let's just attack the vision directly. Let's solve these hard problems. And who cares? We'll struggle, but at least it's more interesting than compromising. Uh, that was it. So we just threw out everything last summer. It was it July, beginning of July or something, and just rebuilt the whole thing. Um, and then things, you know, I think we closed our first sales, uh, when was it, September or something, end of September of last year. So even less than a year ago. We didn't even have a working product a year ago. So less than a year ago, I remember closing our first one or two sales. 
without a fully working product just yet, but enough to demo. And then things just started taking off from there. Yeah, we closed the sales, panicked, uh, realized we need to actually make a working app that works in a in an industrial strength fashion, not just in our demos. Mm-hmm. Scrambled there and deployed some stuff, and then had a very easy time raising money in November of last year. But wow. I've seen both sides, you know, being rejected by everyone and being the bell of the ball. It was quite the journey, I have to say. Yeah, quite the leap of faith there to throw everything out. All right, well, well, well now let's talk about this this new product you've built. Uh, why is the timing right for this product, this company now? Yeah, the big phenomenon is probably why I mentioned earlier, just SaaS explosion. And people do have there's a certain semblance of SaaS fatigue. Um, people really don't especially on the business side, really don't like opening up a million apps just to get work done, you know? And so there's SaaS explosion, customer data being split. SaaS itself uh, exploding also means that way more companies suffer with this problem, suffer of this problem, where they have a product that contains that has a database underneath the hood contained by engineers and they want data out of it. You know, when there were five SaaS companies, there were only five people on the planet who had this problem. And now there's all these SaaS companies, which means they all have a sales team and a marketing team and they all have an engineering team and all the sales and marketing people want data from the engineering team regarding the product itself. So that's probably the trend regarding why now. This has just become a common enough problem, which means it's a large enough market, which means the VCs are happy to fund this sort of thing. The other bit, I think, you know, because one can look at that and go, yeah, but data integration companies have existed, right? So why you in particular? Um, We've implemented things differently, and there's a certain element of, how shall I say this? The ideas produced by humanity, you know, the, the level of ideas just change with time. You know, as we look at software or any technology, really, the next generation of people always have better ideas than their previous generation. And so I think there's just something about the history here that we've just gotten to a point where the simpler ideas and data are clear, they've been implemented, and there's just a natural evolution now to just build on those and stand on those giants, so to speak, right, on their shoulders and just do things differently or better. So you've, you've mentioned kind of the, the no-code aspect of your product. We've kind of talked about the need for it. We, we might have beaten that horse to death, but I, I think we really understand now the need for this product. What are the core elements of Polyatomic and, and what you're uh, you know selling to your customers? Sure. So when you say core elements, what do you mean by that? In the sense of kind of like that no-code approach, what, what, uh, what kind of style or flavor does your product use to advertise to a customer? Yep, yep, yep. Sure. Customers get in touch with us with a goal in mind and with a particular problem. And their problem really comes down to what I stated earlier, which is it's annoying to keep having to go to my engineering team every time I want data piped into our system. And so we don't offer you know, a menu of products that need to work together. It really is just one product. And our response is, sure, talk to us. We'll talk to you in turn, and we'll just show you this product that can get your data moving without you having to consult these engineers. Um, what we offer them is a quick five-minute setup where they can go 
I have these fields, you know, we hook into all the systems within the customer, the databases, the business applications, and so on. And then the person who sets up the data sinks has access to all the fields in every system. And they can go, you know what? I want these fields from this database to end up in these fields in Salesforce, click. Mm-hmm. I want these fields from somewhere else to end up in these fields in HubSpot, click. I want to augment every Zendesk ticket with live user data so that our support team's fully informed when people write in, click. So it's really, it just takes a field-based view of the world rather than, you know, what traditionally would happen with these integration companies is for every task, you had to think about the queries from scratch. You know, I'm, I'm starting, what system am I beginning with? Where am I ending up? Let's write the query. And even if the same data would be sent to different places, you would have to set up a separate pipeline for every one of those situations. Whereas with us, you sort of, you build your internal universe of fields once. And so if the same four fields need to be in five different systems, you don't have to construct those source fields over and over again, five times. You construct them once, you reveal them once, and then anyone can jump in and go, yep, I'm going to move these guys here, I'm going to move those guys there, and so on. I'm not quite sure if that makes sense without me drawing pictures, but I wonder if it makes this clear. I think it was very good. Um, and, you know, listeners always have that uh, uh, reverse button. Yeah, the, the, the analogy I use, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the analogy I use with the customers is, um, or even anyone who asks, is it's just like a restaurant menu in the sense that a restaurant gives you a menu of food to choose from. You've got your appetizers, your main courses, your desserts, aperitifs, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, we let the customer construct their internal menu of data from all their sources, and they build this menu once. And then anyone can jump in, look at the menu on offer, and grab bits and pieces into their own systems. Got it. Perhaps that's a bit more accurate. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and metaphors are always great. Thank you for sharing. Let's take a look under the hood. Uh, talk about your tech stack and what important choices you might have had to make early on in regards to your technology stack. Mm. You know, it's hard to sort of claim too much credit in that, frankly, every startup ends up with choices they regret, and that's the stuff you tend to think about. And it's, it's so hard to anticipate things. Um, so I'm not one to take too much credit here, but we're certainly glad to have picked, you know, on the front end, there's a very classic stack now, you know, I pick TypeScript and React. And that's what we use on the front end, nothing controversial there. Um, on the back end, we are particularly glad, there's more variance and choices there. We're particularly glad to have picked Go as our um, language that we use. <laughs> It's quite suited to infrastructure work. It does have native concurrency support, which is we make very heavy use of. So the sort of general infrastructure, systems, concurrency, space of problems is quite well suited to be addressed by Go. And that's something we're glad for. I think absent that, you know, I can't claim credit for too much. You know, you do always just run into problems with scale and so on. You know, every sort of generation of customers results in you learning how to evolve your system. Uh, so I won't claim too much, or I won't make too many statements of grandeur there. I do shy away from them. But we're certainly glad to have picked Go. I'll say that much. Okay. Well, I'm glad I asked. I, I hope, uh, you know, I always, it's always interesting to hear what people say. And, um, you know, little tidbits like that can always help someone if they're starting their own company and have to make decisions. It's absolutely valid. Yeah, sometimes one has to shy away, and that's you know, my co-founder is a CTO, and I don't code anymore. I used to code when we were two people, and I've stopped now since we have a team. And I do always squint at the CEOs who speak too much on behalf of 
how the engineers feel um, because I do wonder, right? <laughs> the engineers listening going, uh, excuse me, that's just not how things actually work. But so, uh, you know, how happy is everyone with the choices we made early on? <laughs> I hesitate to really answer that question, but I can tell you what I feel. <laughs> some, some engineer cursing you and... and, and yeah, and it's, it's very possible. It's very possible. I'll just uh, yeah, t take it with a smile on my face and go, great, well, that's your job to just change it. <laughs> All right, well, let, let's move on to milestones. You know, you've only been around well, this iteration of the product for a, for less than a year now. No. But if that's the case, you know, maybe pivoting was uh, one of your first key milestones. I'm not going to put words in your mouth. Uh, what are some of the key milestones that you've achieved uh, along your journey so far? Um, I mean, there's really one key milestone, which is which is acquiring the customers we've acquired, you know, countless the exact number and so on. But it's, it's a, just a huge, huge range. You know, it's a large companies, medium-sized companies, small companies. As far as milestones, we really just like addressing customer needs as fast as possible. And there have been so many problems we've encountered on the way that initially seemed intractable or even too difficult to be tractable, practical, which I suppose that's what intractable means, perhaps. That's, those are really the milestones I'm glad of. You know, that the first time someone tried syncing 4 million records through our system, <laughs> well, <laughs> it was early on, but, you know, it did bring things down for um, our nascent set of customers. I think it was over a weekend or something. That's just a milestone that sticks out, right? Where you just look at this sort of thing and rejig your systems to be able to handle scale. Thus, feature customers just have things work. No one blinks twice and everyone's happy. Those are the milestones that really feel the best, right? You customer does something you never expected. You not only end up addressing it for them, but for others as well. So quick follow-up, uh, is there a, a future milestone that you have um, in your site um, that you're looking to achieve? There's certainly a revenue milestone, although I don't want to mention it. And please forgive me for this. I know it's so very trite, right? So founder not wanting to mention things, but there's certainly one in mind. Um, hiring is a big one, you know, and that hiring is not a milestone anyone cares about, but we do care about it internally. There's just so much to do that it's very difficult to find any day when people aren't overwhelmed with work. It's just how things go, right? Customers want this, current customers, future customers, all the stuff we'd like to do that no customer has ever brought up all gets mixed in. And um, we do, yeah, it certainly would be nice to even, I don't know, double the team in less than a year. Totally. I, I'm sure that resonates with uh, a lot of folks. Let's talk about your customers. Who's buying your product? They tend to be B2B SaaS companies. And again, it's everything from the tiny startups to the large companies. There's, it's, there's not so much to say regarding a particular niche, you know, but this is a common one across them, sort of B2B SaaS. There's a sales and marketing effort, which means they have sales and or marketing systems. There's an online product, which means there's a product database or a data warehouse. And the guys on the business side want the data flowing into their systems. So it's a pretty wide, wide range of um, companies. You know, it's, it's everything from, you know, the enterprising, very experienced founder who has worked in marketing for 10 years and is now the founder of a three-person startup. So he set up a CRM, right? This person now wants data in it. You can imagine a 10,000-person company with Salesforce. They have a CRM. They want data in it too. Right. So there's a lot, yeah. All right. Well, uh, next question. And this one's on the list. I'm, I'm not sure if this will stay in the interview because I feel like we've talked about this. You know, some of your early customers include Brex, ShipBob, uh, SourceGraph, and Vanta. 
What are they buying? Can you talk about some of the use cases for these early customers? Yeah, sure. So very typically, I'd say, you know, the, the customer success use case is a big one. You know, sales team sitting in Salesforce, wanting to monitor various product metrics from within Salesforce. Sales team used to talk to engineering to get them to build this stuff in-house, or maybe even they use in some cases, right, they're using some other integration product that was very onerous to modify because these companies are all growing, right? So there's always new data to start piping in. Mm-hmm. It's not like you set up your integration and then you leave it. It's, it's a, it is a living, breathing creature that needs to keep maturing, changing uh, new pieces of data moving. And so in some cases, they were just using a tool, an existing vendor that was just very onerous for this particular task. You know, every time things had to be modified, they had to spend a week changing things, testing things, right, fighting the system. So it's usually in this situation. The root issue is that uh, salespeople in Salesforce or marketing people in HubSpot or whatever it is wanting data from the product, oftentimes they'll have an internal implementation that takes a long time to keep up to date with the latest data that they have. And so we come in and go, you know what, forget engineering, forget this onerous tool, uh, just use us and everything's quick and easy. How about the business model? How do you guys make money? Very boring answer, I'm afraid. Um, you know, B2B SaaS, uh, so we do the annual contracts and charge a fee for them. Yeah, I, I really wish I had something thrilling uh, to reply with, but, uh, you know, just one of many in this sense. Well, you got to do what works, right? Yeah, I wish I could talk about crypto arbitrage or something, but no, that's not us. Yeah, you're not working on a blockchain type of deal? <laughs> no, not, not, no, not, you know, somehow, you know, I'd love to, if there was a day when we could work blockchain into this company, well, I'd be thrilled, but <laughs> I just, I can't quite figure out how. All right, well, let's move towards our closing questions. What are some of the challenges that you face as a founder? Also, you're, you're a first-time founder, uh, correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. Uh, so what are some of those challenges you face that, that might keep you up at night? Hmm, this is quite the existential question. Or I think any founder, you know, and that's, you know, let me list the ways is uh, how one wants to answer it. But perhaps we can focus on big ones, you know, because really this whole endeavor is one of um, modulating one's mood. You know, some days you feel like a complete and utter failure. Everything's going to shut down. And then the next day you wake up and think, yep, we'll IPO tomorrow. And really, if, you, if you're undisciplined, you can spend your whole founder life just yo-yoing between these two states, uh, which... I doubt is a pleasant existence. So let's see. It's always worth it's always worth you know being somewhat calm, somewhat stoic about things, and just focusing on the big challenges as background activities. Let's see. Hiring's you know again not the most thrilling of answers, but still true. Hiring's a big one. You are faced with a mountain of work, a whole chunk of which is just not getting done because there just aren't enough people. Right? Everyone's overwhelmed as is. You as a founder are probably still doing jobs that if you had a magic wand, you just wouldn't be doing anymore. They'd be handed off to someone. And really, your job, just like everyone else's job within a company, is to make yourself redundant um, as soon as possible. If you know how to do something, well, the company should probably hire someone to do it such that it's novel for them and so that you can move on to more advanced work. So hiring is a big one, right? It's it's tough to hire, of course. You know, we've hired, we've been lucky that our some of our friends have been quite, and former coworkers have been generous enough to join us and give us their time and, you know, share in our struggles. But um, it's difficult. It's a very competitive market with COVID and so on, right? There aren't, even those, you know, it, it may, it perhaps was the case that hiring remotely was arbitrage in some 
sense because you know people based in San Francisco or New York or wherever wanted everyone to be physically present. But now it's you know everyone's up for grabs by everyone else. Right. And so yeah, that's that's certainly a big one. You know, hiring is actually probably the big thing on the mind. And then there's the usual, right? So, I mean, you have internal revenue targets that you're chasing as a founder. You're accountable to your investors, your employees, even. Um, and you know, there's always the odd deal that's rather um, lucrative that can perhaps pierce the stoic armor, you know, and get to your emotions a bit, where you start crossing your fingers and doing those sorts of things in the run up to the deal closing. But um, I'd say, you know, rather consistently, it's just looking at the mountain of problems and thinking about when these problems will get solved keeps one up at night, you know, hiring being one antidote. Well said. How about this? Let's let's wrap up with this. Can you share something significant or uh, maybe surprising that you've learned from your entrepreneurial journey from the last 12 months? Mm. Well... What surprised me was that I'd read all the Paul Graham essays. You know, I've been reading Paul Graham since, I don't know, 2005 or whatever. And, you know, Paul Graham and then YC started it. There's just so much content on how difficult the journey is. And, you know, at some point, I felt like I'd read, I don't know, 20 different testimonials about startups and how difficult they are. And I thought I'd internalize it all, perhaps rather arrogantly. And, of course... No, what surprised me is the classic cliche that says, oh, it's always harder than you assume, ended up being true, even for me. When I say even for me, well, I'm not special, but I thought I was special. Turns out I'm not. You know, I was also surprised by this. Regarding my own self, I guess the tolerance for pain, um, <laughs> the tolerance for what may seem like quixotic struggles, there's a certain, I'm just not sure what the upper bound is. You know, so I'd rather surprise myself with them. Um, just knowing how much, how much I'm willing to endure, as far as um, struggling goes. This is you know, the classic just uh, playing the role of you know. Some days it does feel like Don Quixote tilting at the windmills, you know, just endlessly charging and charging uh, at at some nonsense. But uh, once in a while, something does come out of the other end, and then you go, you know what? Great, so let's just carry on. Well, you know, you sound like you deal with a lot of problems. Uh, you know, you sound like you got a good head on your shoulders and you're able to kind of, you've mentioned the word stoic a few times. You're able to kind of see the challenges that life presents and, uh, you know, uh, continue. Do you have any like words or, or, or a mantra, you know, words you live by that you kind of keep in mind maybe when you're facing these challenges or, or every day when you wake up, something like that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> the big one is just that it could always get worse. Be thankful that it's not, right? This country is going through civil wars. You know, people have lost families to um, grenades and all sorts of terrible things. And so just realizing, well, if those guys can make it through, in many cases with a smile at the end of it, you know, why can't I? <laughs> this is nothing. So that's actually a big one. It could always get worse. If you just keep thinking that, then <laughs> you tend to be thankful for what you have. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking every time I record a podcast. <laughs> no, uh, I'm kidding. Um, well, well, really great words to end on. Um, I, I, I love that attitude. Um, before we get out of here, what's the best way for our listeners to maybe reach you and learn a little bit more about Polytomic or, or ask questions? Sure. Um, you can go to our website, um, www.polytomic.com. And um, there's a lovely little contact us form. And feel free to send whatever you want through that. Wonderful. All right. Well, we're going to end our show there. If you enjoyed it, please uh, you know, subscribe if you're not already um, where you get your podcasts. And if you did enjoy it, leave us a rating. 
if you didn't enjoy us, you know, tell us why. Uh, Galib, thank you for joining the show today. We appreciate your time and insights and uh, most of all your attitude. I think uh, this was a, a really good, really good show. And I think the listeners will appreciate it. My pleasure, Alec. Thanks very much. Oh!